Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Performing Arts podcast. My name is Andy Boyd. My guest today on the program is Dana Mills, author of the book Dance and Activism, A Century of Radical Dance Across the World. Uh, Dana, could you briefly tell us to start off with how dance and activism are intertwined in your life? Um, Thank you so much for having me and for engaging the book. So I have been an activist since I'm 13 and a dancer since... I guess before, like many people, I discovered dance quite early in life, and it's been part of my life since. I still dance, though now for my own enjoyment rather than anything else. Um, I am currently speaking to you all from Tel Aviv, uh, where not engaging politics or activism is a very hard choice. So I joined the Israeli-Palestinian left human rights and peace movements when I was 13, and I've been active since. And actually, now I work in a human rights organization that facilitates access for Palestinians out uh, in and out of Gaza, an organization called Gisha, although I have to say I joined it way after I wrote the book. So obviously nothing I'm going to talk to today is related to my current work. But it's interesting to work on freedom of movement when after you write a book on dance and activism. So I guess for me, the two fields have always been a little bit intertwined. And I see in dances around me, the kind of quest to be active in the world to change the way that we live in communities. So it's been a very intuitive connection for me. It's interesting you use the phrase freedom of movement, because I found that was like a very generative uh, sort of pun in your book, that many of these uh, dancers that you're writing about are are people who are uh, refugees or immigrants or other types of arrivals in new places, seeking the freedom to move across borders, but also seeking the freedom to move their body in a, in, in creative expression. Do you, is that kind of one of the main uh, connecting points between these two broad subjects, dance and activism for you? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I have to say my current day job is dealing with freedom of movement in a very non-metaphorical way because we engage <laughs> with Gaza, a city that has been a strip, a whole area that has been under um, complete closure for the past 16 years. So um, freedom of movement, as in just even crossing a border, is something that is very radical. But I think you're correct in the sense that I've always gravitated towards thinking beyond borders. And my first book, which also looked at the connection between dance and politics, um, the subheading was Moving Beyond Boundaries. I think it's something that I've always been interested in. And again, growing up in Israel-Palestine, the question of boundaries, the question of border, who who gets to cross a border and who doesn't. You know, some of us uh, feel much more free to move in the world and can act much more freely than others. And um, to move is not always a choice also, that has to be said. You know, I was writing the book during the so-called refugee crisis, whereas obviously we know that people have been trying to illegally cross borders for many, many years, but the kind of sudden awareness in the West broadly construed that there is such a thing 
as um, a death toll that comes from simply putting a border between two countries or having a marine marine border um, that that can be lethal um, is something that you know is 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 in my consciousness. So I guess. I mean, you could see a dialectic in both sides in the sense that dance has freedom within it, but it's also a form of very harsh discipline. So, you know, there's an element of unfreedom within the movement, but also mm. you have to have you have to have some kind of freedom in order to move in the first place. Other than that connection, the connection of freedom of movement in both fields, what do you see being the relationship more broadly between dance and activism? And I ask that because it strikes me that it's maybe not the most intuitive uh, connection. I mean, dance does not often have a narrative, often have characters, often have uh, a text, any of the things that make it very easy to kind of make activist art. So what do you see as the connection there between dance and activism? Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the same thing throughout the hundred years that you write about. No, no, no. I mean, I should say the book looks at different, so to speak, case studies, but they're also exemplars of how dance can be used as an activist practice. So I read in the book, dance is a form of activism. I would say I'm, I'm going to start with something, something very basic, which is impatience. I think both dancers and activists have an impatience of waiting for something to happen to them, for movement to happen to them. There's a kind of energy and need to change things in the world, to, to be in the world in a way that is dynamic, in a way that is generative, in a way that facilitates other people's movements, perhaps. And I think, you know, again, I kind of, I have to say this book happened to me by chance. So I was living in the US in 2016. I had a fellowship at the NYU um, Center for Ballet and the Arts, whose founder and chair and kind of visionary behind it is Jennifer Holmans, currently the New Yorker dance critic and author of many wonderful books herself, including a new biography of Balanchine. Anyway, I came there to sort of deepen my thinking on ballet and its relationship to various um, areas in the world in which it didn't generate. And I found myself walking and at times organizing women's marches against Trump. So, you know, for me, that was a very uh, transformative year. And it was very interesting because many people around me who are dancers by vocation, by passion and by temperament started looking for uh, ways and to be activists. And for me as an Israeli, I mean, most artists around me have some kind of engagement with the political world, again, because we, we can't really not. If you mm -hmm. are silent, you are complacent with wrongs going on around you. So for me, it was something that was part of my biography. It was part of everyone I knew around me had some kind of political inclination, including dancers, of course. And I saw sort of there was a wave of this politicization and, you know, drawing to very grassroots activism. So again, like, I, I happened to be around for the first Women's March and I sort of saw that whole movement unfold and then other sort of grassroots movement, if it's the environmental movement, you know, the Fridays for Future and other kind of people really taking to the streets. And then the interesting thing is that I ended up editing, sort of doing the final writing and editing the book during COVID where there were very physical constraints on activism and yet people were still looking for ways to be in the world and to dance together and to be active together. And there were all sorts of like internet versions of, of both dance and activism, but there was still this 
sort of search to to be active to change the world. I would say both forms. So I started with being impatient, and I would end with both forms of um, I would say habitus. Maybe are, are ways to to change our most immediate or further environment. It's it's a way of being in the world that demands change. I participated in some of the protests that you're talking about, and I, I especially remember um, one sort of odd day uh, right after Biden was certified as the as the winner of the uh, 2020 election, where me and some other uh, colleagues participated in this weird march that was sort of half, sure, but neoliberalism's not going to save us, and half, oh my God, thank God, you know? And... Um, and there was a lot of dancing that day, a lot of spontaneous, you know, dancing in the street. Um, I remember the the ubiquitous uh, you're about to lose your job song being played repeatedly over that day. Um, do you do you find like uh, that kind of literal connection between actually dancing in public in a protest context? Is that is that a, a kind of generative site for your thinking about this connection? Or are you more interested in, you know, dance in a formal concert context reflecting what's going on in the streets? I would say definitely I'm gravitating more towards the first because my inclination in starting to write the book and generally in my writing and thinking is to push for further democratization, both of dance and of activism. And I mean, activists can be very elitist in its own way, as we both know. And dance, of course, has a history of elitism. Especially, I mean, I'm interested in ballet specifically because it's, it's mm-hmm. of its elitist perception. I'm interested in those who try to go against that. Um, I think there's something very different about dance that is, I don't want to say spontaneous, because also dance for stage can be spontaneous, but demo- democracy and dance, in the sense that you don't call yourself a dancer and yet you want to dance in the streets because there was a political transformation in your life. I think that's absolutely something that is, you know, it, it, it's important for yourself. It's important for people around you. It's important for for others to feel that I, I am of the school that believes that everyone can dance and everyone can be a dancer in the way that works for them. And, you know, that's that might be one of the reasons I don't work in dance anymore is that I did struggle a lot with elitism and with the fact that there were a lot of very undemocratic tendencies within that world. But I think, you know, there's nothing that should differentiate for that, for the sake of the argument, a ballerina and someone who's dancing in the street, if they're affecting other people, if they're affecting the way that they themselves think, if they're affecting change in the world. So I, I definitely agree with, with that definition of dance as activism. You uh, discuss at quite some length this um, very long Emma Goldman quote that has somehow been distilled down into this misquote of, you know, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution, or there's many different versions of it. Um, that That quote has always struck me as probably not real, because it just doesn't just doesn't sound like how Emma Goldman wrote. I mean, she was uh, kind of a Victorian writer as a stylist. I mean, she's very kind of verbose as the the full quote bears out. What do you think accounts for the longevity of this quote on the left, despite its, you know, obvious uh, 
uh, fakeness. I disagree that it's fake. I think, you know, also I disagree that she was a stern Victorian woman. I mean, she had, I, I did some archive work on her and I have to say my interest in the quote is, is starts from my love and admiration for her as a person. I'm not an anarchist, but I find her fascinating as a personality and I find her work fascinating. And, you know, she wrote about a lot of things that still resonate now with us today as kind of big dilemmas. I think there is an element of policing, and especially women who are radical, which is kind of a running theme in the in the book, um, either women or those who are um, at the outskirts of society. You know, she was certainly at the time that she was active. And the kind of idea that you have to be stern and serious in order to be taken seriously in politics. And the underlying argument of the book, the theory of the book, if you will, comes from Eleanor Marx, whose birthday, by the way, is next week. So it's very timely that we're speaking this week. And Eleanor Marx, amongst other things, beyond being uh, the first editor and biographer of her father and a very important organizer and um, theorist in her own right, um, she was the first Champagne socialist. She called Champagne her idea of happiness. And um, this is an important discovery the entire sort of rediscovery of her life made by her biographer, Rachel Holmes, in a fairly recent biography that I commend to all of you to read. Uh, it's called Eleanor Marks a Life. Anyway, there is this idea that if women go into politics, they have to be stern, they have to be serious, they have to be unfun, if you will, and they can't dance, you know, like you have to be taken seriously. And I have to, I have to say, I've been thinking about this from the other side after going into sort of activism or politics or human rights or whatever you'd like to call it as a vocation which is basically after I wrote the book and there's still this kind of expectation that if you're going to give a speech if you're going to give a brief you have to be serious you have to be professional and of course to an extent I understand where that's coming from but there's a lot of other um, elements of you know levels of oppression that come with that because it's always, you know, the women, the queer, the non-white who have to show that they're serious. Men are okay. They can they can joke around. They can make sexist jokes. They can dress unprofessionally. It's all okay. It's the rest of us who have to sort of show that we're serious. So I think there's something for me that is really important about not taking that as a given. And, uh, and you know, whether she said it or not, it's it, it kind of doesn't matter because I think the ability to say I am a revolutionary and it is because I dance, not despite the fact that I dance, is a really important statement. And again, it's really interesting for me to be now on the receiving side of this and to see, you know, who takes you seriously and who doesn't and what are the things that you should tell people about yourself and what are the things you shouldn't. Um, so, you know, we have made progress since the days of Red Emma, but certainly not enough. Let's get into some of the specific case studies you write about. You write about Martha Graham, who's, I think, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known dancer choreographers of the American 20th century. But I don't know that she's often thought about as uh, as someone whose work intersects with political radicalism. Could you uh, explore a bit some of those connections between Martha Graham's work and the politics of her time? Yes, definitely. I mean, I have a long-standing interest in Graham. Um being educated in Israel, both in dance and politics, um, as well as one place where Graham's legacy is very central because she was the first artistic director of Bacheva Dance Company, um, whose current artistic director is Ohad Nari. Um, so there's kind of a whole tradition that she left here and all of us have been kind of educated on. And I've been fascinated with her 
as a woman who was groundbreaking, definitely radical in terms of how she reimagined dance. And my PhD, I did my PhD at Oxford and I wrote my first book out of that work, really. And I looked very closely at um, some of her very early works, especially Lamentation, which is a fascinating solo she did um, just before the financial crash, actually, of, of the 20s. And kind of looking in, in the archives, I spent some time in the Graham School. I taught there, I took classes there, and I spent some time in the Library of Congress and her archives and other places. There's a whole kind of period of her life where she really kind of, she was radical in more than one way. I mean, I think that most dance scholars and dancers and teachers would agree that, especially in the beginning of her career, she certainly was radical and she reimagined dance and she basically gave us modern dance as we understand it today. So, you know, because also she lived for such a long time, everyone was at some point either her student or her competitor or dissented against her. So there was something really interesting in that kind of having an arc of a life that basically was equal to the 20th century. She was born in the late 1890s and she died in the early 1990s. And there is an interesting turn in her life, which I discovered again, it was interesting that I kind of delved deeper into that around 2016, 2017, where in the 30s, she starts making work that is very um, explicitly political. And, you know, at that time she was active, especially on the Lower East Side. Most of her dances were either uh, African-American or Jews. Um, African-American dancers came a bit later, sorry, but definitely Jews and immigrants. And uh, people who were very active on the left, American left then. So we're talking about the trade unions, we're talking about various other radical movements. And of course, the Lower East Side has this very interesting radical history. So there's a kind of interesting overlap between that kind of organizing that happens in that specific geographical area at that point of time and her work that emerges out of that. And, you know, she she kind of creates work that definitely toys with political themes. And then there's a really interesting woman that there's a really interesting moment that I kind of like to pause on because she really doesn't get enough credit for it, um, where she's invited to the Berlin Olympics and she basically sends a very specific letter that says I will not come because my dancers will not be welcome and you know there's a lot of debate around boycotts there's a lot of debate around the morality of them so it's important to recognize that she actually boycotted you know a Nazi event um before what we knew we we know what we know about the holocaust and her reason was 100% solidarity so you know she's a white American woman she could go then it would be perfectly fine for her, but she kind of knows very well that most of her dancers are Jews and she cannot take them to Germany. And around that time, she makes a work called Chronicle, which I write on quite a lot in the book, because it is kind of, it's an anti-fascist work. With like, you know, that term and using it in that context could be a bit volatile for some, but it is really an anti-fascist work. And it's a work about women resisting fascism. And she creates it just a little bit after she um, declines the Berlin Olympics. So there is this kind of moment where she, she descends in dance and she descends in um, in sort of speech, if you will. And I think... We, we tend to sort of see a very long, rich period of life, such as hers, under one register, whereas obviously people go through a whole lot of processes in their lives. And um, 
it was really important for me to reclaim that moment. And it was interesting for me also to see that Graham, the company, has kind of put on Chronicle many, many times, including something that I think is really important in the context of our current world, which is that the first ever African-American dancer, the really beautiful Leslie Andrea Williams, dances the the principal role for the first time as an African-American woman against the backdrop of the Trump presidency. So, you know, there is a kind of moment of dissent that is both historical, but is also very contemporary. Um, So, you know, it's very easy to sort of look at something like that and say, oh, interesting casting or whatever, but there is also a lot of weight in meeting. For, for these kind of decisions and for sort of bringing a specific work back into um, the repertoire. So, yeah, I mean, I would like to reclaim a bit of Graham's radicalism. She tends to be seen as a grand old lady because towards the end of her life she was, but she was also a lot of other things. And it's really important for us to remember people as a complete um, entity and not just as a fragment of their lives. I find that whole kind of 1930s Lower East Side Union Square moment, just endlessly romantic and fascinating. So it was great to kind of imagine her in that milieu. Um, one of the dancers who worked with Graham, who you write about is Anna Sokolov, whose work is also still performed and has gained new resonance during the COVID era. Could you talk a bit about Anna Sokolov and, and her work? I think she's a little... Or maybe, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly how well-known she is, but I know she's less well-known than Graham, so uh, our, our listeners may not have heard of her. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. I mean, Anna Sokolov is, um, she started as one of Graham's dancers, but then she developed her own very important and interesting career. And she was one of those kind of Lower East Side um immigrants dancers she talks in her biography she talks about being very poor about dancing first for the trade unions about doing kind of communist dances and I mean there's one concept that I write about a lot in the book and I'm endlessly fascinated by which is um, alienation and I'm trying to take it away from the sort of very strict classic Marxist reading as in Karl Marx um and I think there's something about her work, and especially she has a kind of staple piece that that is very well known and has really, really changed dance in many ways, which is called Rooms, which is really about the kind of aloneness of being locked away from the world, whether physically or metaphorically. And indeed, that work, work and sort of it had a kind of new performance during COVID um, and kind of our thinking about what it means to be not just alone, but alienated to be kind of withdrawn from society and to not have very basic interaction is obviously a question that kind of again it was funny because I was editing the book while the lockdown was ongoing and that question is really very contemporary and I mean with Sokolov it's interesting because it it she's less dramatic than Graham I mean like in the book I wrote from a wonderful both Graham and Sokolov dancer called Jennifer Conley and she kind of talks about the fact that you don't have these great like moments of um, euphoria as you do in Graham. Graham is very dramatic and she gives you kind of climax throughout the work. And Sokolov, it's harder. It's harder on the soul. And I think there's something more kind of resonant with the kind of period in which she works, which is sort of the mid-late 20th century. And sort of seeing what happens after 
sort of the demise of the Cold War, seeing, um, you know, the effect on America, really, of this kind of going into these endless ideological battles. Um, poverty, you know, I think for people who grow up in poverty, it's something that always stays in, in one's consciousness. It's not something that you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, I grew up as a poor woman and now I'm a famous dancer, so everything is fine. I think she has this sensitivity towards economics that not many dancers have and kind of what it means to be kind of without nothing and to be locked away in a tiny room, which, you know, it, it is the reality still sadly for so many people in some of the richest countries in the world, including the United States, where you are in Britain, where I was. So, you know, there's something about bring, bringing that drama to the forefront of the stage and bringing it as a drama, is bringing it as something that is worthy of a dance of kind of isolation and um, dispossession and being lonely because you have nothing in terms of physical surroundings or, or beings to bounce off inspiration. Um, which I think, again, really resonated with me in that period. I think, you know, the Trump years in the US, and then obviously I was living in Britain for some of the Brexit years, you did see that effect on people. It's not only the the racism and violence and that kind of thing that that both countries went through. It's just kind of people really withdrawing into their little world and sort of not being able to engage with others, and sometimes being afraid to engage with others. And not having a shared society from which to draw some of the energy, the inspiration, the thing that keeps us going as human beings living together. One of the you you, write, you just spoke a bit about uh, alienation as kind of one of the central concepts in your book, and another one you kind of counterpose against it is solidarity. Do you think it's too much to say that much dance is in oh, some way about solidarity? I don't think it's too much. And I think dance can be about solidarity, but it can also generate solidarity. And there is something I'm really interested in dance as a practice and not just as a performance, because, you know, to, the moment on stage is very short. It can be, if, if you're a prima ballerina, it can be like an hour if you have your own solo. For most people in the world of dance, it's like five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, an evening. But actually, the life of a dancer is very rich and has many other moments apart from that. It's, you know, coming in the morning to the studio and then spending time with your colleagues and then going out of after a performance and touring together. And there's the whole kind of arc of a life that transcends that one moment of sta on stage. And I think, again, there's something very strong about going through life as part of a collective. And it can be part of a political collective, but it can can also be part of a choreographic collective. So I think there's something that is essentially about solidarity in dance in the sense that it is mostly, you know, again, even the greatest dancers still go to take class with their companies. You know, I'm now thinking of the quintessential example would be New York City Ballet. You know, even the principals of New York City Ballet go and take company class. There is something that is very strong about collectives. And, you know, we can talk about the dark side of collectives, obviously, but we can also talk about the, the side that gives people richness and give people, gives people somewhere to, to run away to. And I, I remember very vividly, I was when I was in New York during the Trump election, again, I, I went to a ballet class a couple of days after because I was like, you know, what, what does one do? And there was this very moving moment because we were all kind of looking for that togetherness of being together in a studio and executing movements that we all knew. You don't have to think about, you know, the world outside, but there's something very forceful about going through that together. And, 
you know, in the modern world, we're going towards more and more alienation and work becomes more, becomes more and more fragmented. And certainly the, during COVID, when people were working from home, there was a huge sense of loneliness in work and alienation and kind of you, you battle your boss and you battle the workplace and you battle everything on your own from your living room. And to counter that and to sort of think about what it means to be together in a space, what it means to be acting together and to change the things around you together, whether in dance or in activism. Let's move on to another case study you write about. Pearl Primus is somebody I hadn't heard of before. Um, and, and it seems like she had a, a very long impact kind of from the 30s popular front era through the civil rights era. Could you talk a bit about who she was and how you see her work as an exemplar of the relationship between dance and activism? Yeah, I mean, I think that Pearl Primus is it. She's very well known in the world of dance it's true that she's not very well known outside of it but like many i think there's an element of how well you will be if you're white you have a better chance if you're a man you have an even better chance if you're a black woman you know you will not be remembered uh in history sadly and you know it's fair to say that's still true but i mean pearl primus was uh, also part of the um that scene on the lower east side and um she was kind of um, also educated in circles where Anna Sokolov and uh, Martin Graham was moving. But she basically started engaging very early on with what we now call white supremacy, but it's basically what does it mean to be a black woman in a world that is completely white? And um, she actually interestingly went to Africa and went to sort of try and learn what it means to go back to a homeland from which obviously she didn't arrive. She was born in New York City. Um, and she also had a PhD in, um, sorry, she was born in Trinidad, but she came to New York when she was two years old. Um, I think for me, there was interesting, something interesting about her. I mean, there are many things that are interesting, but she was a scholar herself. She had a PhD in anthropology. Um, she tried to look at what a lynch would look like from the perspective of the spectator which is a kind of it's a twist that is hard to fathom especially at that time when she kind of talks about um she has a dance called strange fruit which i write about and is very well known some some of the listeners might know the song which is basically about witnessing a lynch and i think especially in our era and i think the question stands when i wrote the book but also still now what is the responsibility of those who witness racism? What is the responsibility of those who happen to come across a moment of lynching, of extreme violence, etc.? And activism can also be speaking up against the wrongs. It doesn't have to be like I'm leading a movement. It could be I'm seeing something that is horribly, horribly wrong, and I just cannot be silent. And I think there's something endlessly inspiring about her encountering all you know i can't even imagine what it's like to be an african-american woman um at that moment in time and still sort of say but i want to think about the responsibility of those around me and not just the oppression that i myself am encountering um i think it's she was really active during the civil rights movement and she had all sorts of connections um to other artistic leaders um but I think it's really important to recognize the multitudes again in, in one's career that, you know, you can be an anthropologist, you can be a dancer, you can investigate various scenes of racism, which indeed she did. Um, and still you'll hardly be remembered, which is, I think, 
in all my writing, I'm as interested in the role of the writer as I am in those who are are basically, I don't want to say the subjects because they're very generative for me, but I think it is the, the kind of responsibility of those of us who who see ourselves as writers or narrators or whatever to sort of look not only at the names that we recognize at the layers that are available to us, but to ask who is missing from those pages. And she certainly, once I started reading about her, I was kind of like, she should be in every dance book from now until mm-hmm. forever. That strikes me as something that is part of what she is doing in that piece as well, is kind of resisting the reduction of herself and her body to the status of a subject, right? That she's sort of saying, I'm not going to reinscribe this violence and brutality in my own work. I'm going to kind of turn the mirror to my audience. Exactly that, yeah. And, and some of the descriptions of uh, other other Black spectators watching her work, I mean, it almost sounds like they're describing like a superhero or something. It's like they're just so amazed at the physical feats that she can perform. Um, and, and I could see how that would maybe be a bit uneasy, um, especially if she's performing in front of a primarily white audience in, in, in terms of the kind of high visibility and scrutiny that black people were under then and under now. So that's a, that strikes me as a very complex kind of moral uh, terrain to try to navigate as a dancer and choreographer. Definitely. And I mean, there's always kind of uh, the duality of you can be the best of the best of the best, and you'll still be the black woman who dances about racism, right? Like, And yet men, white men that just do, vague dancers will never be the white men who do vague dances. Like it's, it's never the same um, place with regard to the work. But I think, you know, it, you know, I'm now quoting from John Martin, who was one of uh, the premier dance critics of the U S and, you know, it could it's fair to say across time, I mean, kind of, he wrote, she is a dark brown young lady. She got low down on the ground, walked, turned, twisted, and then jumped up into the air. I mean, you can't call this anything but racism. So again, I think there's something truly incredible and inspiring and important is sort of not being reduced to that and sort of fighting against that dehumanization and subjectization that she went through and still creating the dances that she did in the way that she did. Um, and especially so early on, again, we're talking about even before the civil rights movement, which have, you know, her first performance, the most important performance when she starts is 43. So yeah, we're talking about really early days in kind of in that arc of time. And I think that that also is important to recognize. I happened to rewatch the Bob Dylan documentary, Don't Look Back yesterday. And there's a fascinating moment where, um, some British guy is talking to Joan Baez and he's like, you know, all this stuff with the civil rights movement, how did that all happen all of a sudden? And she's keeps trying to talk to him and say, you know, it's, it's not all of a sudden, like people have been working for this for, for, you know, I think she says like 26 years or something like that. And, and, um, we, we do good to remember that, that it didn't, didn't all start with, uh, Brown certainly didn't start with the civil rights act. Uh, it's, it's, there's a long history there and a long prehistory. Um, I'd like to shift to a, a, we've been talking mostly about modern dance. I'd like to shift to talking about ballet. And I'd, I'm i kind of curious about, I mean, you've kind of left the world of academia, the world of dance studies to some degree, maybe not permanently, I'm not sure. Um, do you, at this point in your life, feel that ballet is so kind of elitist and hierarchical that it is 
uh, sort of beyond saving? Or do you do you find hope in attempts to sort of diversify and decolonize uh, ballet as an art form? So I'll start from the personal, because the personal is political, and then I'll answer your question, which is an excellent one. And I'll say that I've, I've sort of, I still dance and I still take ballet. And I was actually encouraged to go back to ballet by our um, legal director, who is a wonderful, inspiring and powerful woman I admire greatly. And in my job interview, she asked me about my dance. And I was kind of shocked because I was like, I was referring all this kind of lengthy discussion of um, various cases that my organization, Gisha, has been handling. And I sort of, I went back to thinking about dilemmas in human rights and international law. And she was like, tell me about where you started dancing and why you dance and tell me about your writing. And she's been encouraging me to go back to ballet. And I think it's it's more than an anecdote because I think there's something, again, very generative and really very important and for me really replenishing about ballet because, I mean, I also love modern dance and I take modern dance also and I, I watch a lot of modern dance. But ballet, there's something about the setting and the discipline and the fact that the same movements, one follows after the other. And you kind of know the structure of the class and you know the structure of, you know, many variations. You can come in and do them wherever you are. That has a really big potential for um, really crossing borders. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, as, mm-hmm. as you noted in the beginning, I'm interested in crossing borders and in sort of dismantling borders. And... Um, there is something really very important in having that, you know, if you will, universal language. Now, again, in the book, I don't disengage the very elitist history of ballet and kind of I draw on the work of Jennifer Homans, who wrote a wonderful, wonderful book called Apollo's Angels, where she basically shows how ballet came from, you know, courts in France and then went to Russia and were kind of part of very oppressive systems there. But there's also, I think, something inherently subversive that can be subversive about ballet. And, you know, people around the world still find a lot of solace and um, inspiration in ballet. And even if they don't sort of come from either France or Russia. So I think there is something, you know, I'm all for reinventing the form and creating new forms of communication, but I think there's something really important also about going back to the canon and diversifying the canon and decolonizing the canon. And I mean, whether ballet can be completely decolonized is a big question. I don't know if I have an unequivocal answer, but I do know that a lot of people are making ballet their own and it's really very important to acknowledge them and not just sort of say, I oh, oh, well, another attempt to do something a bit different. And I mean, in the chapter, there's one example that is really important to me. It has been important to me um, also personally. So I write about apartheid South Africa, which is in Israel is, you know, for fairly obvious reasons, a place that we think about a lot in terms of ethnic segregation, in terms of two illegal systems that are discrete from each other. And it's really interesting. It's actually, the example came to me through a a contact, someone I knew suddenly told me that amazing story about a woman um, who started a dance company for children, really kind of teenagers and children that was completely desegregated before apartheid fell. And, you know, I interviewed some people who came out of this company and said that company was the first time I saw either a black or a white person. So, you, you know, that kind of radicalism is something that, 
is important in its own right and you can't just subsume under the term elitist because for those people it really wasn't it was perhaps the most radical thing they did and i do think that still there is a tendency to sort of again see things in um unidirectional way to sort of just say ballet is elitist informative and it has a very specific order so it is for people who like order only and modern dance or contemporary is something that is more rapturous and it, it is more about disorder and it can be more anarchist but i think actually there's a lot of disorder in ballet and there's a lot of discipline in modern dance also so i'm also interested in troubling the boundaries if you will between these different art forms and certainly the the political uh, orientation of ballet is is uh, is flexible. I mean, it was a major art form during the Cultural Revolution in China, which is nobody's idea of a of a conservative uh, uh, time period. Though um, so maybe maybe not a lot of people's idea of a, a constructive progressive time period either. But but the point I think still remains: it's not inherently uh, a conservative form necessarily. Um, I'd like to talk about one more of your case studies, uh, which is you write a bit about the Iraqi hip hop dance scene, um, which is sort of in some ways the opposite of the conversation around ballet. I mean, here we have an art form that was really emerged as a dance of resistance in you know, places like the South Bronx in the 1970s and 80s, and then became a tool of kind of soft power statecraft during the occupation of Iraq, where there were hip hop dance, you know, I don't know if there were fully classes, but certainly hip hop dance was kind of um, introduced to at least a lot of the people in the Iraqi hip hop dance scene through in- intermediaries who were, you know, sponsored by the U S government or who were U S government, you know, occupation forces them- themselves. So, um, is, do you see a sort of irony there? Uh, is, is there any way to kind of square the circle in, in terms of, is this a subversive, uh, you know, kind of uh, anti-authoritarian dance form, or is this a dance form that has been kind of thoroughly co-opted, or is it some third thing? How do you how do you think through that contradiction there? I mean, I'm endlessly fascinated by um, dialectics, and I sort of I think in dialectics, I think in four ways dialectic, and I think you know again nothing is just one thing or the other. It, it's always more than one thing, and I mean. I have to to be specific and say I'm interested especially in the Kurdish scene um, during the occupation of Iraq and, and kind of a young Kurdish dancer who made it to New York, Hussein Simko, who's doing really, very really well. Um, and he learned, it's kind of amazing, he learned first how to break dance from looking at videos on American soldiers' phones. And of course, you know, when we think of the Iraqi occupation, we think about, you know, one of the gravest violations of international law and human rights infringement that have been ongoing since, and, you know, all under the guise of the war on terror and kind of a lot of Western discourse that some of us bought into at the time, some of us didn't, and we kind of went along with, and now we're kind of realizing what came out of that. And basically, I would say demolishing whole cultures out of that and sort of really attacking very deeply shared values, especially, again, of the Kurdish people. And... 
I think it's really interesting for me. One reason I was drawn to to Hussein's story is that I think it also troubles another concept that I'm fascinated by and I don't have a, a linear relationship with, which is cultural appropriation. Because, you know, when I was writing the book, cultural appropriation is a very hot topic, as you know, in the US and in Europe. And we tend to think of cultural appropriation as kind of white people stealing um, people of color's modes of um, expression to sort of... As, as a pastiche or as a way to sort of um, put them down. But yeah, we had a kind of weird cultural appropriation of a Kurdish dancer who's basically using a form of descent that has nothing to do with him um, many, many miles away. But I think there's still something that really resonates resonates about a dance that is has been invented to fight oppression. It's still used to fight oppression. So I think I'm trying to trouble... The, also the boundaries between what we see as oppressed and who do we see as entitled to dissent, because I think that's another big question of saying, who are those who are uh, oppressed? Who are those from whom, you know, the culture has been appropriated? And I mean, there's no doubt that the Kurdish people have been, you know, the, the kind of amount of injustice that has been done towards them is really huge. And there's very little awareness of it. You know, there's also an element of, you know, which kind of oppressions do we hear about? Which kind of oppressions do we not hear about? Um, so I think there's something about that constellation that is really, really fascinating for me. And I mean, for Hussein, it's a very natural form of um, communication. It's something that comes very naturally to him. And, you know, the proof being that he basically came to the land of hip hop and and is doing well there. And I think to be a bit less cynical and more realistic, it might be the reason why I'm now doing human rights work as a vocation. I do think that whereas culture and dance can be really important forms of dissent, people also need to live and need to live securely and need to have a way to sort of have very basic rights um, secured and for Hussein dance and specifically hip-hop was a way to leave and to start a new life and to um, basically get access to things that he could never have if he was back home so I think there's an element also when we talk about dance as activism it's also a way to sort of really restart your life and to sort of secure yourself something that is better than you could have imagined in a different place. And I will end on a set of more somber note and say that I write and juxtapose Hussein's life to the life of another dancer who very sadly died in a bombing in in, in Iraq, um, Adele Euro. And I think there's an element of, if you are raised in areas such as Kurdistan and Palestine, and you know always you are the lucky one. You know, it's a very specific awareness of mortality. I don't refer a lot to Arendt in the book, but she's always in the back of my mind. Um, You're aware of your mortality. You're aware of the fact that you are the lucky one. You are the one who made it. You are the one who wasn't killed by the forces. You are the one who kind of uh, is able to cross the border. You're going to try and cross the border in whatever way you can. So I think that's another thing that is really important. Again, if you live in places where where that threat is less present, you're less aware of that. But I, I really do understand that position. We've sort of alluded a bit to your positionality in Israel at the moment, but I'd like to kind of dive a little bit deeper into some of those themes. I mean, how do you think about 
these themes from that perspective, in, including, you know, your freedom of movement is much greater than a Palestinian's freedom of movement. Um, your, your obviously, you know, uh, uh, your privilege is is much greater than a, a person living in Gaza or the West Bank. Um, how do you think about sort of your relationship to the struggles of the Palestinian people from the perspective of somebody who, you know, uh, genuinely hopes for some sort of eventual, you know, peace and human rights. I'm not sure exactly what what sort of future vision you envision, but but you know, some some dignified, stable life for the Palestinian people um, from the perspective of somebody who comes uh, who sort of from the other side of the wall. How do you how do you think about that? And and you talk about a bit about Saeed in your book. I, I wonder if he's somebody you might like to bring in to think through the, that kind of uh, moral position. Yeah, I mean, I will start by saying a disclaimer that I'm going to talk only on my own personal um, level because I do advocacy for an organization. It's important to acknowledge that. Um, I was raised on the wrong side of history. I know that very well. It's very clear to me. It's something that has been the underlying narrative of my my life. And um when I was growing up, there was this moment of hope where we thought that peace was just around the corner. And, you know, I started crossing the border and sort of seeing how people who were like me, but also not like me, because they lived such more, more constrained life that, than I lived. And um, I think there's something about when you recognize that and when you see that close by that really changes you and you can't ignore that anymore. And I do sort of think that we need to remind ourselves of the fact that being silent and being complacent is is being part of the wrong itself. And I think, you know, that's something that has always drawn me to action and sort of gives me energy every day. And sort of seeing people who take that as a vocation is endlessly inspiring and energizing, but also incredibly frustrating because things are now very bad. Israel elected on the 1st of November, Israel elected its most far right government ever. And I will sort of put in proviso that all its governments, including Labour and other parties have always been right. You know, Israel has never had a properly leftist government. It had hardly any Palestinians in positions of power. It had Famously, in the last government, there was one Palestinian who was in a position where he could influence a little bit, but uh, he was a very kind of also, um, shall we say, not politicized Palestinian. So it was kind of like tokenism that we know all over the world. You take a minority, you find the person who's least dangerous to you, and you you put him in a position of power and say, look, you know, we're, we're not racist. We have this person. We gave him some power. Um, I think it's important to to realize where we are and sort of to just acknowledge things whether they're really bad as they are here or whether they're improving, as you, you sort of talked about your experience after Biden was elected. And it, it's not a pleasant experience. And it's, you know, it can be very isolating and it's hard emotionally because I am I am who I am. I am Israeli and I, I, I don't disengage from my surroundings, but I also see it as a moral responsibility. Now, Said came to me through, um, you know, he's always kind of been around for all of us, and he's he's important for us to read and to understand, and especially I think there's a lot of really good intentions that can go astray in the sense of, you know, trying to do things that seem progressive, but are also very deeply orientalist. So, you know, that was my first draw to him. But I actually use sort of more... Um, 
thinking that is about sort of maybe the counterpoint to where we are and sort of trying to maybe move beyond um again a unidirectional um view of history of where we are in history and Said is it kind of he writes about exile and about being sort of existentially homeless in a way that is both inspiring and really very um depressing because obviously it's my people who made him existentially homeless right i don't i don't want to mm-hmm. glorify that i don't want to say kind of you know he is kind of um making something beautiful out of something that is really very ugly but i think there's something about sort of maybe for me also sort of withdrawing in all this battle in this kind of little stretch of land between the river and the sea where i'm at and where i'm talking to you today is about who gets to call what home and maybe if we're all a little bit homeless, especially Jewish people realizing that they will have to, at some point, give up the idea of an exclusive homeland in order to um, to have some kind of life here. Um, that's something that I'd like to propose. And, you know, it is still a fairly radical idea here and definitely not in my circles, including, again, people around me who see themselves as progressives. Uh, they don't still think about that, about, you know, the right to return, about sort of unraveling history beyond 67 talking about 48 talking about the nakba is a kind of something that happened and kind of formed lives all around us but i do propose that in order for us to have some kind of solution in order for us to propose from endless oppression that is really taking a toll i think you know when you see how people live in israel you really understand that on the one hand there has been a kind of sadly perfection of the occupation and sort of putting it away from mm-hmm. everyday life in Tel Aviv, but the moral price is there. And, you know, there's a lot of violence and a lot of anxiety. And you have to see that, you know, I've always believed throughout my life that oppression it weighs a price on both sides. And of course, the much, 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 much heavier price is on the side that is oppressed. But the side that is an oppressor pays a moral price, which is really very important to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of the uh, the Frederick Douglass quote about how mm. if you attach a chain to someone's ankle, you'll find the other end attached to your own neck. Definitely. Definitely that. Yeah. Which I don't think he was trying to imply any sort of equivalence as well, obviously. No, but there is that. And I think it's, you know, I, I think it's really important to remind all of us and Israel-Palestine is a very extreme place of injustice. It really is. And, you know, working on Gaza, you kind of are encountered with you're evil every day. But there's a lot of injustice and oppression all around the world, be it also in the West and, and a lot of other places I write about. I write a little bit about Australia and, and of course, South Africa. Things are far from being perfect, although it is an exemplar in kind of how to transform a society. And it's really important to understand and to sort of, again, remind that no one, no one is free until everyone is free. If you have people oppressed within a society, no one gains from that. And I mean, the struggles that I write about that have been kind of the arc of the 20th century, be it the civil rights movement, women's rights and kind of its various waves, um, decolonizing impetus, all these these processes are ongoing. It's our responsibility to sort of carry them out and to sort of make sure that all of us are freer than Emma Goldman and her comrades. Well, I think you've brought us back to the beginning in a wonderful way. So I think we'll end it there. But Dana Mills, thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful book, Dance and Activism. It was really a pleasure to get to talk with you. Thank you. A real pleasure for me also.